Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Good Day Sir podcast with John DeSantiago. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. John, it's been so long again, I, f- I feel like I've forgotten how to do this. You're the one that's sort of globetrotting and having tons of vacation and fun times. <laughs> I actually took a week of, not even a week. Did I take a week? I'm going to take a week. I still haven't taken a week. You took I a took- week and then you took like a really long weekend. When did I take a week? The week before, two weeks before your long weekend, you had a week. That was two days. No. Yeah. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was this last time, but before that, you that had too. a week. No, this, this one was, this past one was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday also. Huh. I still haven't taken more than two days off at the time, but I'm going to change that because I'm about to take a whole week off. Hmm. Five days. Which I'm looking forward to. Although, um, the, the place we're going in Florida, they've got a massive outbreak of this red tide. Have you, you know what that, have you heard of that? Mm-mm. It's some kind of red algae bloom that is, it's been happening for hundreds of years. It's just normal, I guess. Um, but it just started like about a week or two ago. And it usually lasts a few weeks and like, you're not supposed to swim. You can't go on. We had like a fishing boat thing planned. Can't fish. They won't take you out. Oh, that sucks. I know. So I'm hoping it recedes in the next week. Were you planning on fishing? We're, we're probably doing, doing all kinds. I mean, we're going to the beach, so we're planning on doing just swimming. And we, we had a, we had a boat rent, a, uh, slots on a fishing boat, you know, like rented or whatever. I've mm-hmm. never done that before. Have you done that? Like deep sea fishing or any of that stuff mm-hmm. you have? On our honeymoon. Was it fun? It was fun, yeah. but I, I was starting to feel a little. Oh, were you queasy? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Did, um, I don't spend enough time on a boat to, I mean, I can for a while. It's not like I get on and I'm instantly sick or anything, but after a while, especially if I'm a little bit dehydrated. Um, but morning fishing and stuff is fine. Yeah. Huh. But that one, the water is pretty choppy. We had dolphins swimming next to us and stuff. Yeah. So it was nice. And I wonder if my, I did some snorkeling, which yeah. I'm horrible at. I mean, unless you're like done it before a bunch, you're probably going to be horrible at I'm not the it, best right? swimmer. You're, yeah. No, mm-hmm. not either. And I know enough to cross the river, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on the river. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, hopefully that works out. Well, what's been going on, man? Been uh, you in the uh, functions beta or pilot, whatever? No, I haven't had time to even think about that. Yeah, I've been trying either. to. I've been doing a bunch of just. Uh, uh, I hate saying it this way. I want to say community, but experience cloud oh. development stuff yeah. and building UIs and trying to learn new tricks and trying to gain efficiencies and. It's funny because a few years ago I was like the community master, and now I would have to have you show me like even how to do any community work because it's it's completely changed. Like back then you couldn't do like lightning was not. I mean they they had these things called maybe they still do like lightning bolts or something that were kind of like these little starter things or whatever, but it was just not a thing. But nowadays, like I guess you can just kind of do all lightning, right? You can. You can do all lightning. I've still been doing a hybrid of aura and lightning, unfortunately. But um But it's all lightning, right? It is all lightning. Yeah. Um but the deployment story still is really bad. Yeah. It's I mean, I, I essentially have to commit to just taking hours after all the config is done to redeploy the entire site. And sometimes that means me going into the target org, removing a bunch of stuff or disabling a bunch of stuff, and then having it get overwritten later just because of just some of the way the dependencies work or don't work. Um, I've also found that the tooling sometimes doesn't deploy correctly. It starts throwing all these weird errors, but if I use a chain set, it's fine. 
And what, I'm assuming what, that's the difference between the tooling API and oh, okay. metadata API. So when you're using the tooling API to well, I I was until okay. I spent god awful time of hours wondering what was going on with my config until I found out it's just broken. It might be fixed now, but it was broken for the longest time. Huh. What and are you using any of the SFDX, the CLI to do any of this deployment? Yeah. Okay, and that and it uses the tooling. You, you get yeah. to pick. I just I'm so out of the out of the loop on all this nowadays. Uh, well, if your if your source is in source format, then you can convert it to metadata format, and then you can deploy that. Um, but that's not what I, I'm. I was just trying to get the the tooling to do it. Yeah. So Illuminate Cloud will will kind of deploy, but it's using the tooling API in the background. And then I even tried just going straight command line on some things, and it just it still was having issues. So I I narrowed it down to it being a tooling API at the time that was just throwing fits. Hmm. I mean, it would complain about things like the name of a page. Yeah. Where if you if you name a page, it it hyphenates the name if there's a space. So if, I don't know. You have about us. It would be about dash us. Well, the deployment tooling. Would crap out and say you can't do that. It has invalid characters. I'm like the well, dash is invalid. It would say it is, but it's not. So a similar thing, slightly similar, but not really, happened to me recently. And this is in some kind of integration. I think I bumped up the the like the I think I, it was probably the REST API, maybe composite. I can't remember. Um, I think I was probably using like the version 50 endpoint, and I mm-hmm. bumped that up to 52. I was just doing some testing. And I was started getting errors, and it was because, um, it, I mean, it must have been the com- composite API. So, on the composite API, when you you can add, you basically build a composite list of up to like twenty five records. Mm-hmm. Um, but for each like record you put in it, you also have to give it a reference ID, like an identifier of some point. And the reason is because in subsequent like the subsequent records in that composite, you can refer back to um, like one of those previous records, like if sure. you want to populate the ID from it, and you do that by referencing its reference ID that you're supposed to give its reference value. Um, and between, I guess, 50, I think it's probably starting with version 52, dashes are no longer allowed in those reference mm. uh, values. So I had to convert like the dashes to underscores. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun. I mean, luckily there was, um, I think the error message was pretty good. It actually said, your reference ID is invalid, and here are like the valid characters or something. I think it said like mm-hmm. it has to start with a. It basically has to be a valid, almost like like Java or JavaScript identifier, I think. But yeah, dashes are are not allowed, which makes sense. So it's I start with a letter, <clears throat> and then can contain letters, numbers, and underscores. Hmm. <clears throat> but that was a change from previous versions, the previous version where it, it, dashes were acceptable. I wonder why. I, I, yeah, I, I, me too. I'm just like I don't. I mean, who was? With, who, okay, I can. I want to understand the scrum meeting when they're just going around the room and someone says, "You know what? I think we should just not allow dashes and reference values anymore." I'm just. <laughs> I, I don't like seeing them. Well, I don't know why people, people don't use underscores. I have a real thing against dashes, and everyone's like, "Okay, yeah, yeah sounds good." <laughs> I mean, what's the what's the possible reason? <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> a good point. I did want to add that on one of my other issues that I, I figured out, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it before, but on deployment, I was having these, um, well, not only on deployment, but also whenever I would try to remove a deprecated uh, component that I was using on a site, 
uh, it turns out that, and I don't know if this is just when using experience bundles, which is basically the source format version of a site instead of that binary that they use, that they used to use. Okay. Experience bundles. Interesting. Yeah, you have to enable them, but that's what I was trying to deploy was experience bundles, and that basically turns the site into metadata. And that metadata has an XML file behind it. Um, but what I found out is that if you create a page and you tell it, you know, I have a page with three columns or something, because you can, you can go through the experience builder and, and tell it what type of page you want. And let's say you put something on that third column, a component. Okay. And then let's say you decide, I'm going to change my mind. I'm just going to have two columns. Okay. Well, that third column gets dropped off the screen, but technically it's still in the config and that component is still in the config. Mm, so if you, if you save that and then pull down the config for it, you're still going to see that third column. In it the still has okay. that dependency. And I could not figure out why I still had this dependency. Well, tell me that the page had a dependency. And I was like, the component's not on here. It's nowhere. Yeah. It wasn't until I realized that if I'm going to start moving things around or changing those pages and I know a panel is going to get removed, that I probably should remove everything in it or move everything from that panel to something that's going to stay visible. Because otherwise, it ends up in the config, and I think the whole thing's broken when it's not. Um, but that was that was one thing that yeah. I had to learn the hard way. Hmm. Yeah, that's just those little edge. I don't even know if they're they're not even really edge cases. What are those called? This is why I like to when it comes to Salesforce, I like to stay in the very much in the mainstream because <laughs> as soon as you start, you know, and especially like just combine something, combine like Experience Cloud with like person accounts or some other kind of like off the beaten path thing that's when you really start to just you hit all kinds of things and yeah i don't know i like to i like to work with like accounts and contacts and that's pretty much it <laughs> <laughs> i don't mind doing the lightning development but i've i feel like there's so much has changed that i feel like every time i'm having to relearn all my bad habits or the reasons i did certain things and train myself not to do them that way um, i still have a problem with understanding when to mark something as tracked. I mean, I know a lot of people will just mark everything as tracked. What does this mean? They're just reactive variables. They're, they're variables that, that as state changes, it goes and starts propagating oh, all those changes. Put some like a notifier on it or yeah. something. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't like to do that for, I mean, in my head for performance reasons, I don't think everything needs to be tracked. Yeah. Um, so I try not to, but then I get into a, a point where I'm modify something. I'm expecting the UI to change and it's not. And I have to go in and just start playing around with what's tracked and what's not, or, or play around with how I'm assigning a variable or how I'm using something um, just to get it to to work correctly. And that's a lot of trial and error, unfortunately. It's just when I have all these different screens or all these different components that are interacting with each other and there's events propagating everywhere and, and things that are tracked and things that are not tracked and things that are passed and things that are not passed. And it's just my whole my whole cycle for development where I think it should be easy. Like I think this component should take me eight hours. It ends up taking me double, if not triple, because I'm having to deal with all these interaction quirks and trying to understand it. Um, Are they, is it undocumented behavior or what's like, what is it that's unexpected? Or is it just, is, is it the whole model just is not, the model is tough great? to wrap your head around okay. when you do something a little more advanced, you know, mm -hmm. on the base, when you do something basic and you're following the documentation or you're looking at reading, I mean, even reading the documentation gets kind of iffy with, with how technical they are yeah. with, with the documentation. Um, I like to consider myself fairly savvy when I'm reading technical stuff, but sometimes it just one sentence they think explains it. And I'm like, that means nothing to me. Mm. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, or they say, go here for an example, and you go there, and there's either no example, or the example just has nothing to do with what you were looking for. Yeah. Um, so, 
So I do rely on the community for things like that, but it's just, it's just learning. Once you start doing more advanced stuff or you start doing things with more dependencies, or you have this hierarchy of components that you're trying to interact with and manage state across and know when to change, when something needs to change. And then you also throw on the fact that you have these wires, these wire methods, which are basically auto, auto callbacks to your um, controller methods in Apex. And usually you have some binding variables that whenever those variables change, it automatically runs that wire method. Mm, it calls back to the server? Calls back to the server, okay. but that's cached. So um, if, nothing, if nothing within that state changes, then it doesn't try to re-render the UI, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, however, there are points where I needed that to refresh because other things changed um, and not necessarily those binding variables changed. So I needed it to refresh. Well, I found out there's this trick called Refresh Apex, which lets you force those wire um those wired properties i don't know what you want to call them those um to refresh however if you there's two ways to handle a wired property one is to give it a name can, I, that, can I pause you for some, one second are sure. you are you binding like apex properties into the into the ui or is it the other way around are you taking like javascript properties and on, upon their change, it cu it's calling back to the server, passing these values into the server. Yeah, so the JavaScript properties, and you bind those to your, basically your payload for that, for that method call. Okay. And so basically, whenever the, any of those arguments call, changes, it knows to call that, that server-side method. Um, but can, the return, can you give me like a real-world example of like what that server-side method would do? Okay. Um, maybe it's just like a, you need to get a contact record and okay. so you have a wired method and you say okay get contact and you give it the id and you say the contact id is this and you bind it to a, a property on your component that says here's the contact id so whenever that contact id changes it goes and grabs that that latest version of that contact okay hmm. and what you can do is with that the response of that wired you can either map it directly to a to a variable to a variable name and that becomes your your wired property mm -hmm. or you can just um, have it automatically go into a function so that you can process that result. Well, in order to use the Apex refresh, you have to capture and store that initial result response because that has a bunch of other information that, that it uses to figure out what, what that wired method called and I guess how to access the cache so we can mm -hmm. do the, the validation yeah, and everything. Yeah. So it's got a lot of stuff built into it. It's probably like a lot of optimization stuff. Yeah. Right? yeah. So you have to have that reference. So even if you, so if you map it directly to a property, you just, say apex refresh and you give it that property name if you did it to a function then you have to grab the result store that to a property that you have access to in your class method or in your class and then when you want to refresh you tell it to refresh that one variable and it seems weird because it's sitting inside of a function and you tell it to refresh that variable which in turn calls the wire then calls your function and then remaps everything it must have some also some kind of logic in there to prevent um endless loops I, I hope so yeah i'm trusting it um but it, it's i mean that's one of the things that i used to not do i would basically not do wired methods which means most of my methods ended up not being cacheable which means my performance was lacking a little mm, bit okay um so i mean that was a new trick and that was something i had to learn but it's it, again it's when you're dealing with all those interactions and trying to understand when something's going to refresh and what's going to actually cause it to invalidate the state and get the refresh that you want. It's, it's just a lot of trial and error. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel dumb 
at, at this point because I've been working nonstop for the last two weeks, like 10, 12 hour days, weekends, trying to get this very complicated <laughs> screen done that has all these interactions and all this different state to manage and toss onto that a local data store for cart mechanism that I have to keep in sync and manage. And not only that, there's actually technically multiple carts I have to manage because in that UI, you can change what your, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, it's, it's, it's to say it's a program. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so if you change your program that you're referencing, then your cart changes. Okay. And it has to do all, all that automatically. And then you have all the validation and all that kind of stuff and searching and filtering and keeping track of what you've selected, what you've registered for. Um, and then all of that, it's just this one piece that I thought was going to take me maybe two weeks ended up taking me four weeks. So is it, do you think, I mean, does this need to be documented better or is it just, just takes a while to, to kind of master using the, you know, this whole model? I think it takes a while to master it, but it also takes a while because as things change, you're having to change yourself. You're having to change yourself. Well, not only am I having to, to update my my usage of JavaScript and make sure I'm using whatever latest features I'm allowed to use from Inlocker, which mm-hmm. are most of them. Yeah. Uh, so all the ES6 stuff and, and things like that. Um, having kind of safe ways of accessing things and all these properties and stuff. Um, using I use a lot of getters, unfortunately, which is yeah. basically just just a way for me to kind of change data because with the new model of as opposed to aura you could do some inline kind of modification of variables you can say you know if this variable is this or concatenate these variables to make this one string inline in your markup mm-hmm. with enlightening you can't do that mm. you basically map it to a single prop to a single variable yeah um and that's it there's no mutating of it or anything you just say this is the variable to use in that spot yeah which means if you do need to do something like change the program name and format it to something that has I don't know, a name plus a date plus a value. Yep. You have to do that in a getter. Okay. So I end up, my getters is just blowing up like crazy. And I'm wondering, is there better ways to manage that? How do I do this? That's interesting because in other, you know, front end JavaScript technologies nowadays, like you can, you can build like a, a you, like in, like in your template, you can, you can have some expression that's like this string plus this variable plus another string and all that. And it, it actually binds to all those. Any, anything that you're referencing that could get updated, it, it you know, just intelligently binds to all those things. And so that if any one of those things that this expression depends on changes, then it knows to kind of regenerate. And you do e- get some of that. Okay. But you get it inside of your, but you're saying inside you, of your JavaScript class. So what I thought I heard. You don't say, get it in your markup. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, you do by way of that property, but that template that you're talking about exists inside of, your JavaScript yeah. class. You know what still got a lot of this right? <laughs> and it was so long ago. Flex. I'm struggling to remember Flex. We're, we're still not there yet. I, I, actually, I, I, was, I will say that, like, I mean, because the one I have most, most experience is, with, with is Vue, and mm-hmm. it, it does a lot of this really well. I feel like Vue landed on a better model than even, like, what's the other one? React that's real popular? Vue is simpler, and it's got a less of a learning curve than React, for sure. And it just, it, I think it gets more things right. And I, but that's, that's, a, that's for a different podcast. It, it does, <laughs> but even, even the, I even had trouble understanding the whole, um, the, 
the event system for Vue or how it manages the events or, or when, when or what, especially when you're passing things into another, I guess they call them components. Do they call them components? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff was really weird because you have this, basically this inline class that you're creating that manages state and it has like these default or these named things. I mean, the equivalent to that in lightning is like the connected callback method. There's like certain methods that it knows about ahead of time. And you just add that method and it knows to do certain things at that point in time. And even all that interaction took a little bit yeah. to understand. One thing that, I mean, people have to wrap their head around too is um, what is um, it's that whole uh, flux pattern. What's that called? Um, flux pattern? No flux. Uh, is that the is that what the pattern's called? I don't know, but it's it's um, so V has something similar, which is um, it's like it's really this data binding kind of system slash pattern, and it's when you when it's when your app kind of gets a little bit more complicated, and you've got um, you know kind of data at various kind of levels of the component hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to share stuff, but update stuff and have it um, be debuggable and understandable. Um, what is that pattern called? Anyway, um, wrapping your head around that can be a little difficult. If that makes any sense. Yeah. You, you know, for, something, some, for some reason, JavaScript-based UIs, it's just, it's just different. Um, the way you build them is different than like desktop UIs. That being said, I haven't done any desktop UI work in so long. I wouldn't be surprised if the desktop frameworks have adopted a lot of this. And and maybe I mean, who knows? I don't even know who kind of what 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 area was kind of leading some of this, some of these changes. And but it's about, it's all about state. It's managing state in the um, yeah. Uh, v, so views is called Vuex. Right. Uh, actually, I don't know how you pronounce that. It's just view v u e x. Yeah. Vu, if you're French, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be your data store. But there's also like a a um, navigation framework. I forgot what it's called too, but it's what handles all the your navigation, which took me a little bit to understand as well. Yeah, the basic idea behind Vuex is, is inspired by Flux, Redux, and the Elm architecture. Oh yeah, that was that was a bit of a pain because you basically you couldn't interact with the data store directly. You either had to have some kind of getter to read a value. Um, I mean, there were instances where you could technically get to it and read it, but it was, it's kind of frowned upon. Okay. <laughs> you're supposed to have a getter for it, and if you're going to save something, you're supposed to dispatch yes. an event yeah, yeah, to the yeah. data store that says, change this value. Yep, so it's a little bit, I mean, it, it kind of feels like it's a lot of work in some ways, but it um, as apps get bigger and more complex, it just, again, it, it keeps it debuggable. If not... If you don't have some kind of pattern like that that you're using, um, you just like stuff is changing off the screen. You can't figure out why it's changing, where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, well, I feel like these frameworks, especially these reactive frameworks, um, kind of bypass that kind of safety. Because while we do have constants and everything in my JavaScript is a constant, unless it has to be a let, and I never use vars ever that I can remember any anymore, uh, except in the console. <laughs> I learned that if you use constants in the console, you hit a line and you hit enter and you try to run that line again, it'll fail because your variable's already defined again. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, if it's a var, it'll oh. just override it 
but because it's a constant, it won't ever let you rewrite it unless you refresh that whole page. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Um, so that's the only time I use VAR these days is yeah. in the console. Um, I mean, VAR, VAR has its places, doesn't it? I guess it does. Like, if you have a value, just like, say, second, it's got a number value, that's going to be changing. It can't be a const. Well, that's what let's for. Okay. Oh, I guess, so let just has different, let similar to VAR has different, some different semantics in terms it of has, like hoisting and things yeah, like it's, that. It's, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's scope safe versus VAR, which everything gets, on VARs, everything gets uploaded to the top of the stack um, outside of all the scopes. So it's available across all scopes, whereas constant let are, are all scoped. Yeah. Um, so that's what makes them safer. And then constant, of course, is a lot safer because it's it's immutable. So yeah, there's really I can't. I mean, there's probably a reason that someone will write in and tell us, but I can't think of any reason to use var. Let is let works more the way that your brain thinks it's going to work, yeah. whereas var is kind of con- kind of confusing. Yeah. When you think about what JavaScript does with vars. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it saved me a few times, and it's it's allowed me to to kind of reuse variable names having that scope, uh, whereas you couldn't with with um vars mm. so that's that's really nice um but I, I think with all these frameworks where we have all these getters and everything and things are changing still changing quite a bit um it's still it's tough to debug because yeah. of that well hopefully i'll get to do some more front-end work soon because i'm just I've, I've gotten so rusty i need to i need to knock some of that rust off <laughs> i had to do some uh i had to update a website this is today, actually, this morning. And the whole website is built with, like, it's actually a big website. And it's all, the, the build is all based on, like, yarn, right? So it's kind of like, it's all just like a node-based thing. Mm-hmm. But I just hadn't worked with these tools in a while. And, I've, and I never did a whole lot with yarn, but it was just kind of a pain. I'm like, oh, I forgot. I forgot. I mean, it's just like that, that whole JavaScript community. It's like a double-edged sword. Well, every time I have to jump into these, like the view app, the one view app that I have to maintain right now, I always have to, I always have to deal with the packaging stuff, and I have to remember my npm commands and my build commands and my serve commands, yeah. and um, I, I tend to forget. Even though there's very simple commands, I tend to forget and screw them up all the time. But I I don't think I'd even installed NVM on my on this machine yet. So I didn't install NVM then I because it get the right you know just to make it easy to get the right versions of Node in place and then Yarn and then all these other global things that expected to be mm-hmm. there and it's all this crap and it's like ugh. But uh, I got it done. Um, well, I did something for the first time uh, this week or last week. I can't remember. I um, I deployed. Uh, successfully deployed artifacts to Maven Central. <laughs> so Maven Central is the, it's, it's, I guess, so for JavaScript people, it's like, it's the, um, it's the NPM registry of the Java world. Okay. I mean, they, it, Maven Central is, I won't say this is the first of its kind, although I would say for modern day binary, like repositories, it, everything since then has kind of copied Maven in a way. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, all Java projects. I mean, are pretty much either built with uh, like a Maven build system, <clears throat> or with something like Gradle, which uses which uses like the Maven repositories and that whole kind of Maven coordinates you have for an application. But it was interesting because I did it under our company because it was mm-hmm. a it was a, a open source project that we did, 
And uh, so the first thing you have to do, if you've never, like, I, want, I needed to not only, like, publish this, these new artifacts, but I had to, we didn't even have, like, a, you have to establish, like, a group ID, which then you can publish different artifacts under. Mm-hmm. And so I had to create a group ID. Well, they, because this is going to Maven Central, which is, like, the trusted public repository that, like, everyone uses, um, and it's run by Sonotype, or Sonotype, however you say it, um, they make, like, they're one, they, they're, like, one of uh, two or three companies that, I think the original one too that actually makes a if you want to run your own like like internal Maven repository, tons of companies do this actually, uh, so that they can have like blessed versions and you know control security and everything. Basically, it's like hey, if you want to like whatever software you're building in in house, like you have to use our internal Maven repository mm. because and anything you want added to it, like it's there's some team that has to go check it out and pass security checks and make sure the license is all right. Which re- remind me to talk about licenses for this GitHub Copilot thing. Um, I mean, it just has to make sure that, you know, it's, it's all kosher for the company. And then maybe they'll add it to the internal Maven repository with something you can e- then use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. So to us, so I had to establish this group ID with Sonotype for, for mate cause they control Maven central. And so I was like, well, how do you do that? So, but it involves you, you create a, an account on their Jira, which becomes your, like your Maven central username, which is weird. Um, but then you have to create uh, an issue and saying, "Hey, I want to. I need a new group ID." And and there's a there's a naming convention on these group IDs, and it's basically your. It starts with at minimum your domain name backwards. Okay. So for us, it was like solutions dot elevation. Oh, uh, but it's usually com dot uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So or you know com dot Microsoft or right. org dot Apache whatever, and so in this case, I I wanted the group. Um, solutions.elevation.camel because this is a camel component. And so the first, so they, you have to prove that you actually own, like you have to prove that you're with Elevation Solutions. Mm-hmm. And of course they do the thing where you, uh, there was a couple options, but the easiest one was just, you know, add this text entry to your, um, to your DNS zone. And then once they validate that, that you have access to that and you do that, then they kind of proceed with letting you create your group ID and then um, then you, you know on, on the first time you push because there's all these other things you have to do. You have to um, every every single thing that's that you're pushing every artifact, whether it's a jar file, a text file, a palm, or whatever, it's all got to be a PGP signed with like a PGP digest mm-hmm. or whatever, so that people can validate that um, that the binaries that they've downloaded right are um, you know the same exact ones that you uploaded basically. So that there's no man in the middle that right you know slipped in some naughty code or whatever <laughs> uh so you had to do that um i had to add a bunch of like stuff to the to the palm that i've never done before um but then finally yeah so you 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 do you know you do like a you know use maven to do like a um a deploy to to this um it's like a staging repository really and that's where I think they, if you're the first time you've done it, they check it to make sure you've done. I'm trying to think of what they, there's all these requirements, like signing is one of them. Um, but they, they check all the stuff. But then, anyway, once you're, once you're happy with it, um, you can then click this release button and then it releases it. Um, and that any released things then are eligible to actually sync to Maven Reposit to the Maven, uh, Maven Central. And then it was it only took like thirty minutes, and it got it got synced over to Maven Central, and I was like, "Hey, cool! I have my first <laughs> uh, my first Maven 
it's my first Maven Central contribution. But that was cool. What was it? It is a um, okay. So it's uh, that's a good question. So it's it's a component for Apache Camel, which is like an open source integration system, right? And um, this component lets you. I might have talked about it before because I built it a while back. I just never went through the process of kind of the license and all the crap to end this to release it uh-huh. and make it available to everyone. Um, but it lets you um, in your integration create PDFs from like HTML and CSS and images content. Okay. So it's really cool because you can either, you know, just give it your wad of HTML markup, just like directly in a blob or whatever, or you can give it um, like a file location on your, like on, on the local computer, or you can give it a, an HTTP or HTTPS URL to pull it from. Mm-hmm. Um, in some case, to render the PDF, does it let you run JavaScript and everything in that HTML? No, no, no. Oh, um, so it doesn't really do JavaScript. Um, it does, yeah, it's not going to run JavaScript. So it's not, a, it's not a browser engine. Okay. Um, so if you're relying on JavaScript to do stuff to your state to make it get into something, when then you want to kind of do a snapshot of that or whatever, mm-hmm. then it doesn't do that. It's, um, it's purely HTML, CSS. It does support it like a ton of CSS3. Um, and then, of course, images, so like JPEGs yeah. or pings or whatever. The only JavaScript I'm interested in running is a lot of these charting libraries. That's, that's the main issue with PDF and charting. Yeah. Although there is some new frameworks out there that are trying to do SVG and CSS for all these charting. So that you probably really want to get into that. I don't honestly I haven't tried that much JavaScript with this, so I don't, but I'm thinking I'm guessing that would not work. You'd probably have to do something that gener- is, you know, you're generating SVGs or something. Yeah. But yeah, um, so you know, you just provide it, like I said, either the the I think if if you I can't remember now it's been a while since I built it but if you if you give it just you know raw markup then you have to give it um like some kind of base URI that it mm-hmm. goes like if you like say you reference an image or anything that are relative references in the in the HTML like you have to say okay relative to what where so mm-hmm. you have to get either a URL or a place on your hard drive or something so it can go find like your images and whatever but if you just give it a direct URL to somewhere then it that URL is the base so you don't have to but it, so it really makes it really easy and then also um. I added the capability for it to, because this, like the underlying library that does all the PDF generation, it requires strict XHTML. Like it has to be valid and all that stuff. Hmm. Um, so kind of in front of that, I, I pass everything through. It's actually this, I'm trying to think what it's called, JSoup maybe. But it takes your happy soup, crap soup of, of tag soup. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's like a super lenient parser, almost like how browsers parse. Like you can just throw garbage at yeah. browsers, and they somehow manage to put it together and show you something. Uh, this will do that, and then it it outputs basically like strict XHTML um, to the next thing down. So makes it I, I way easier use, to use because you'd be surprised. Yeah, it, even if you think you build your HTML really well, you'd be surprised like how many errors you have in it actually. <laughs> True, but XHTML was a bit was a bit anal about it. I mean, it, yeah, it's oh, yeah. not fun. It's it's certainly not. No, fun. you have to. I mean, like, you can't have like self closing tags. You know, all tags have to be um, closed. They have to be nest. They can't. You can't have like mismatch nesting. You know, things have to be. You couldn't have just standalone attributes. They all had to be, have equal something. That's true. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can just like checkbox checked. Yeah. You'd have to have checkbox checked equals checked. Yep. <laughs> Thanks to good old XML. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, I was I was very glad to get though to get that published and available because there's I mean the the only other and I was looking around like I'm some of these other um, integration frameworks that shall not be named. Um, I don't think any of them really support this type of thing. So mm-hmm. and and Apache Camel didn't either. It did have s- some PDF um, capability, but you had to provide it like either God, what is it XML fo formatting objects or something else or you can or or just like i mean really it's really low level stuff it's like you know this like these different languages like draw a box here with these dimensions and then put this text box there in it and Mm -hmm. like it is it is not fun and it's like it's never what i want like i want to just create an html page and and so so the way that the way that you kind of use this is or the way i used it is um, I have an HTML template that I then sent through a merge. I think I actually used um, Velocity or FreeMark. I think it was FreeMarker, one of these Java-based um, HTML templating things. Mm-hmm. So you give it an HTML template with all your little tags to like merge data in, and then you just point it to like a basically a Java object or whatever that, that a context that has all the data, merges everything in, outputs HTML, and then that's what I send onto the PDF generator. So I'm creating dynamic PDF documents, but this, you know, yeah, having it having it just with you know HTML and CSS is so 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 much easier than you know, yeah. draw this box at this coordinate and then draw this line <laughs> and it's just oh my god, I don't yeah. know who could work in that language. I've actually I did that a long time ago. I I build XML, I guess they call them sty- XSL, XSL transformations that take like input XML data. And then out, and then you apply that to an XSL template, and then it outputs XML F or XSL FO, which is this formatting language, mm-hmm. which I think is it makes it it's a little bit easier for these for a PDF generator to take that XSL FO language and turn that into a PDF. Super pain in the ass, though. And if you <laughs> don't have a real reason to do that, like the, you know, going HTML is the, totally the way you want to go. Yeah. Only downside is because of some of the transitive dependencies I had, it it's not compatible with the Apache license or like MIT or any of these licenses. So I it actually can't be part of Camel. No. Which is why I had to go through all this. It's on Elevations GitHub. It's under Elevations Group ID and Maven Central. I couldn't I couldn't contribute it to Camel. But they do have like Camel, they wanted me to like do a blog post on it and like announce it. And and there's a section on like the Camel documentation where like you can list like the basically these externally available components that mm-hmm. that are for Camel, just they can't be part of the Camel project. All right. But no, that was a was a fun little nerd thing to to do. <laughs> well, John, we have a it's been a while, so we have a a long list of things here. Um, I did like this as a '90s. I don't know where I saw this. I don't know if this is like on some kind of tech news or if this is like. Um, Hacker news or what this was, but it was like, as a '90s programmer, what did you expect the future to look like? <laughs> you were a '90s programmer, yeah. But my ideas of what the future would be like were, were um, uh, they were bad. Like I wanted the. Did you ever see the? What was that movie? Oh, you were an angry. Not that you're not now, but you were an angry developer in the '90s. You were so pissed off at the web. Oh my god, you I'm remember still that? pissed off at the web. <laughs> <laughs> oh, still pissed off at the web. John. I'm still pissed off at the web. 
it's still, still it's, it's causing horrible, you problems to this day. It's a horrible platform. <laughs> I unfortunately have I to build a, on it, but it's go, a horrible platform. Uh, I, gotta, I gotta get time because of this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, the fact that we've built so much on it and the whole world is running on it and it's become this this main way of distributing applications in how about, mass. How about the fact that JavaScript, is the, the crappiest language ever invented, is taking over our lives? Know, it's horrible. How about that? Well, I saw on your notes, and I'm excited about this, is these cloud PCs. Maybe maybe that'll bring us back to the age of putting real applications places and running things. They're just going to run. They're just going to run stuff in someone else's web browser. That's all it is. It's still going to be web. You know, it's going to be web. No one. I mean, the 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 number of apps, like the percentage of apps that they're actually using, like rich desktop UIs or whatever. It's, it's so small. It's like Photoshop and. Um, I don't know. It's like, you know, there's just hardly anyone's doing that. I mean, just the percentage of apps that are, that are not web apps is very small nowadays. Well, I mean, if you look at mobile, mobile's kind of changed that with more, more of them being, aside for the, for the quick, the quick app devs that for some random company that says, I need to have an app on, on there that basically is taking a web app and converting it into a, a native app or something that'll run natively. Mm-hmm. Um, most of those other apps are just they're they're homegrown native apps. They're real apps running on on the kernel. They're yeah, just yeah. I guess it depends too. Because even like Salesforce, I don't think that's native, is it? That's I think that's um, yeah. I don't know, know what it is anymore. Cross platform. I know it changed hands a few times and yeah. technologies at some point, and so I don't know what it is today. But, but yeah, any any good app, a good game, or anything that kind of stuff, that's all going to be yeah. native, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I still I do think though the JavaScript based stuff is getting better. I mean, you the see JavaScript based. Stuff yeah, like just better. like the the web the web technology based games and stuff like that is is getting better. I guess it's just it's always behind though. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I mean, even some browsers are offering like certain or they're they're optimizing certain things to get hardware accelerated, um, which makes a lot of that possible. Um, but still, it's. It's a compromise. So let, let's go through a list of these. As a 90s programmer, what did you expect the future to look like? I kind of, I've got a couple in here, but I also uh, just took a lot from the ones I liked from, from the, wherever this was. Okay. Um, so the first one is that 2D GUIs would evolve into 3D GUIs, like totally like VR stuff, and the CLI would be gone. And there was, um, there was all the hype around VRML. Do you remember VRML? So, no, I don't. Virtual reality markup language, and you would have just like virtual worlds in the browser. It would just everything would be you know lawnmower man or whatever. Yeah, I think I think my future was very lawnmowerish man like where, and it, it didn't make sense. Like Swordfish when he was programming, and he'd have these cubes come together when it was compiling, and and it would error and it would just break <laughs> apart. I mean, that's what I thought the future was like. I'm like, man, why can't programming be like that instead of staring at this yeah, text? It's still, and just... I realized that's so inefficient what he was doing. Yeah. Um. Or what was that movie with the with the guy that that um, they had this virtual reality space for a database, and you would go into the VR to get into the database. But once you got into VR, the database was a bunch of file cabinets, and you had to go into individual file cabinets to access data and look for stuff physically searching. There was yeah. no like virtual search assistant or anything. You, I mean, there was an assistant. It was the programmer who put himself in it mm. as a as an as an NPC. Um, as a what? NPC. What's that? Non-playable character. Oh. <laughs> it's just a gamey thing. Okay. Um, and so, 
at one point he had to break into some office and get into the database to get some data because he was suing or something like that. I forgot what it was called. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought that was cool. And I thought that was awesome that you could just go into a VR and you could go in and start looking for data physically. But that's not efficient. No. That's not what computers were for. And you realize that no matter how much stuff you put on top of it, like computers basically boil down to like files and processes. Everything's files and processes. Yeah. <laughs> or what about hackers? Oh, when they were when they were fending off the oh. the hacking attempts, and they would just like type in keywords to to counteract the hack. Yeah, and then you had like it would like navigate through the servers, and the servers were like these kind of pillars with light and electricity, and you were navigating <laughs> through them, and and you had all this cool music oh and God. computers that started up with all these kind of cool graphics and audio, and like a lot of that did not age well. It, well, it didn't age well, and it didn't exist. But. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Uh, Microsoft taking over and Unix dying. So this is this is weird because if five years ago I would have had a different feeling about this than I do now, um, because Microsoft really failed at the web for the longest time. Um, they're coming back though; it's a little bit different now. But also, the whole thing with Unix dying—I guess that's because of Microsoft's dominance. But it's so weird because you know Microsoft has completely embraced Linux. So, um, well, it's because of the stranglehold they had on. The industry in general with their was, licensing. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it, remember, it was so, I mean, for the longest time, it was just, it was Microsoft versus Unix and versus Linux. And they w- would have nothing to do with it. And they were going to kill it. Well, it was everyone else against Microsoft's monopoly. Yeah. It wasn't that Microsoft had the best technology. It was just that they had this walled garden that they were protecting. Yeah. For profit's sake. And I guess in, in a similar thing, like Microsoft also just, you know, of course, wanting to kill Java. But now they, I mean, they employ lots of people to do. They have their own Java distribution now. They they employ lots of Java developers to build their Java stuff and to have like great Java support. It's just yeah. I don't think people people realized how how mafia like Gates and Bomber were in 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 their uh, age of Microsoft. Uh, yeah, it's funny how people there's such differing opinions on Gates. I it was a little bit beer induced, but I I kind of um, oh Gates was just as bad as Bomber, if not worse. I, I, yeah, my people like to somehow say it was Bomber and Gates was just in the background. He's just the nerdy guy, but no, he was just as bad. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I got a, some argument, something about whether or not Bill Gates is evil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, once you have a certain number of zeros, you're automatically evil yeah. after your name, you know, yeah. or after after you're in your bank account. Um, okay, so I think everyone expected IPv6 to be adopted like a long, long, long time ago. I did too. <laughs> I'm still I was using, prepared for that. I was like, everything's going to change, and nope. I still don't even fully understand IPv6. Like, I know I have an IPv6 address a lot of times, but I still just use my IPv4 address for everything. <laughs> so much easier. What was the idea that we were going to run out of IPs? And that we needed a whole new spec to account for more yeah. usage, but we uh, found ways around that. So there were a lot of stories along this theme, which is like when you were a kid and, you're, and you know, your dad refused to teach you to program. Because he thought it would be a useless skill, because long term he thought the future would be no more programmers, and because everyone was able to program and anything they wanted through drag and drop interfaces. That was a really actually that was a really common thing. Um, how, I mean, it really is. It's it's, it's the drag and drop. Isn't you that know, what programming some of these Salesforce camps are. I mean, they are kind of. <laughs> um, but even um, remember the case and and modeling tools. Like you would you would build out your code by actually constructing these, there were boxes, like rational rows, and I'm trying to think of what some of the other tools were. 
Mm-hmm. But like, or, with you, or you would do it with UML. Be mm-hmm. like, you know, you'd build out your objects. That's just all these boxes with properties and links and everything. Yeah. And then you'd hit a button and it would, it would spit out all your code. I mean, um, M, M, model, MDA, model, and MDD, model driven design, model driven architecture. I mean, those, those whole communities were, I mean, I knew some, um, this one guy, really smart uh, guy who was, I mean, he, he had had this Eclipse plugin that was really advanced. He was like one of these, I forget, it was this MDA or MDD. Um, but yeah, you would build it all out and then hit a button that would generate all your code for you. And then, you know, that, but none of that stuff really ever took off. It just never. I think they're great. Boy, we thought it they, was. Just, they just have their limits. And, and a lot of times, once you get to anything advanced or something. These things are all great in concept and they also all demo well. Well, yeah. Which is why well, they're all really accessible too. If, if I was to relate back to when I was younger, I hated command line. I hated text-driven interfaces. I liked my GUIs. Yeah. I mean, I was a Microsoft kid, so I liked GUIs for everything. And if I didn't have a GUI, I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, but now I see the power of, of command line and the power of, of, I mean, I've never liked visual coding. I, n- I never liked it. Could never do it. I still have a hard time even thinking about it. A lot of, surprisingly, a lot of uh, game engine programming is done that way, visually. Hmm. The way you, you hook up um, mechanisms and layer in different modules for, for different aspects Interesting. Of, of the tooling. I'd like yeah. to see some of that. I still want to get a tour of uh, Gearbox. I don't know how you get that. That would be cool. I've is seen photos of Crazy their... CEO gone, or is he still there? So I don't think the CEO was crazy, but they, like their, what was it, their personal assistant ended up stealing millions of dollars from them and going absolutely nuts. Oh. It was like, he, he was almost like their, yeah, their, basically their personal, personal assistant, but he worked at the company too. It was very strange. Anyway, um, how about this one? You remember how everything was going to, there was going to be like all these component marketplaces and this happened in the VB space. It happened in the Java space. Like mm-hmm. there's all these promises of um, software development is going to be, I'll just be, you know, you're going to like, you know, go to the, you know, open up your visual basic and you're going to, you know, open the, st- the kind of a window to the, like the visual basic component store and just pick and pick and choose your components, drag them on and then just hook them up. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have this like really great marketplace of third-party components. Everything's going to be components. Yeah. Those never really materialized no anywhere. Make any money off of them. Yeah. Maybe I mean, so. I, I, I did invest in those things back in the day, especially when I was doing a lot of visual basic development, is I would, I would, there was like all these different companies and you'd sign on, you buy their suite. But then they started getting crazy with their suites of components where they started kind of paywalling these more advanced features into like, thousands what? of dollars and license, and then they divvied out by how many developers were using it what were some of those big ones like extjs is that one and then um no these were Te- telerik remember telerik, telerik yeah. yeah i mean they're still out there doing their thing you know yeah yeah i mean they still have their purpose but i know and some of those components i definitely would not want to have to recreate i mean they've got yeah. thousands of hours in them i'm yeah. not gonna so it makes much more sense to buy that but it does um all the jobs are going to go to india some of them did. Some of them did. But that was like, that was also a thing like, I mean, it's like, why would you go into computer science or anything? Like, there's not going to be no jobs. It's weird just because there's, you know, they're back when we, back, back when that was like the, the fear. I mean, there's probably 10 times more software jobs in this country than there were then. Yeah. Oh, this, uh, yeah. Low, low slash no code, drag and drop style programming tools would take away many dev jobs. 
Nope. Yeah, not really. <clears throat> and also, this is a good one. The end, and this this probably goes back to the VR one, but the end of mice and keyboards. We were not gonna. I mean, we were not gonna have mice and keyboards anymore. You would just like it would plug into your brain. You could like type through your brain, or there was going to be some kind of like, or it's going to all be speech. You know, like your computers would yeah. be smart enough to, in some way or another, understand what you wanted without you having to type on this antiquated, hundred and one key keyboard thing. Separate as I can type the program faster than I could probably speak it. Yeah, me too. I can often type faster than I can yeah. talk. Type typing lessons, learning how to type correctly, really paid off. You you type correctly, right? Yeah. No. Or, or do you you peck? You hunt and peck? No, I I, I type kind of correctly. Okay. There's certain You're hybrid. There's certain acts <laughs> axes around the edges where I move my hand where I shouldn't be. Oh. I do that like, with numbers. I, like I should be doing a pinky stretch, but I move and use this. What is this my index finger? No, that's just your ring finger. My ring finger. Or, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, instead of my pinky, I'll move to my ring finger. Mm. It's just like bad habits. Anyway, well, do you have any things to contribute to uh, what you thought the future was going to be like as a '90s programmer? Anything else? I I agree with a lot of those. Yeah. I, I believed in a lot of those. Yeah. Um, but experience taught me that they just either weren't realistic or they just weren't productive. Yeah. I'm, I would have never thought that we would still be doing that. That the best way to do things like without question is still, um, lots of just script based stuff, command line stuff. It's just so much more efficient. Yeah. I would have never thought that I'm still would spend most of my day in a terminal. It's just such a powerful tool. Like you just can't get away from it. Can't quit it. <laughs> In fact, every time I try to quit, I term it says, you sure you want to quit? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. And actually, I, I stick with the terminal inside of my IDE quite a bit. I'm using that more and more, mainly because when you go to the terminal tab, it's in your project directory. Yep. And like, it, and here's the other little, there's a little, a little pro tip here. I use this all the time because oftentimes I'll want to pull up finder at my program directory so i'll just go to the terminal in intellij and just type open space period enter open mm. period because yeah. you know in, in, on the mac open is like it's just it's a it's a command that you can give it anything mm -hmm. it, but if you give it like a pdf it's going to open in preview if you give it a url i think it opens in down probably whatever your register browser is um but if you do open like and then just a directory which in, but of course period is just the current directory it just its default is just open spider right to that directory. So, yeah, yeah that's the main reason. It's just because it's already got the context. Yeah. It's you know the thing is it's not near as good a, of a terminal or terminal emulator or whatever as iTerm is. So, I actually try to use iTerm. Do you use I, yeah, iTerm or just use the built-in Mac terminal? Well, I just use the built-in. I yeah. used to have iTerm, but I haven't installed it. iTerm is great. It's just got so many so many features. In fact, it's good just to like keep it in the mode where it shows you like the new t the daily tip of the day or whatever mm -hmm. and in fact because you can also you don't have to wait for the next day you can just scroll through future you know other tips and it's just like wow it does that that's amazing it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> and there went all your productivity i know so just sitting there scrolling through yeah uh, i term tips um man oh I this is amazing it's a magical time <laughs> <laughs> i'm so bad at this john okay Let's move on. You want to talk about Windows 11? Um, I, I really don't know anything about it other than it's out. I haven't had a chance to really experience it. 
well, it looks from all the screenshots and everything, it looks pretty. So I read the article, took some notes. So we now we've this is the big innovation. You ready? That was we've, we've moved the start menu to the middle of the screen. <laughs> well, that and it's finally it's well. I think the older ones weren't either, were they? There was no. I'm trying to think. I think 10 still had a 32 bit version. Oh, instead of 64. Yeah. Um, so live tiles are gone. They're going to no longer exist, which is probably yeah. good. I don't know. I mean, yeah. they're, they're kind of, I mean, I've seen some live tile software. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. It does that. But I, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a Windows user, but they just, you know, didn't really live up to their ideal. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I thought that much of this, you know, just the screenshots I saw, like the stuff, the way stuff was centered and also there, I noticed a lot of the windows are more, have rounded corners. And they have some drop shadowy stuff that looks, it looks way much, way more like Mac OS. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely, I won't say it's still or anything because there's no, there's nothing original anymore, but it definitely looks like they're going in the direction just UI wise of Mac OS a little bit. Uh, I will say Microsoft still does this a lot better. These, and this is before Windows 11, but this, the, um, some of the layout stuff you can do. I know Mac OS introduced a two or three things and you can get, there's a lot of great third party, like little utilities apps. If you're, if you're a real like window organizer, snapper or whatever, you know, yeah. but, um, I just saw like a demo of the windows 11, like what is that? What is it called? Windows snapping, snap layouts, snap layouts. Mm. Those that's pretty cool. Apple's always had poor window management in terms of that. They just think that they've always just, you know, Apple, it's their simplicity. It's like, you know what? That's just we're not going to do it. We'll we'll let we'll let the third parties do it. No, not even that. They just didn't care about it because they there was no APIs for third parties or official APIs for third parties to really do that. So they'd get breaking changes all the time. Huh? Yeah, I don't, a lot I, of these tools that that did window management, they would have breaking changes just about every release. I still don't even. I don't. I still don't use them. Um, I'm, I'm a manual window guy. I do use the the split view where you can expand it and you can have two windows. I wish it would let me have at least three. Is what I would want. Hmm. Interesting. That's because I have an ultra wide at home. So, um, so they're integrating Teams just a lot more into the OS, which boy, I just don't like that. I, I read that that, but I don't know. Um, also, another thing I don't like is how much they're, and I've experienced this recently because I'm I had to set up a new Windows PC for someone. Uh, but Did I have eleven. No, I had ten. Yeah, but even with ten. You have to really know what you're doing to avoid having to set up whatever they call the MSN account nowadays oh, is. Yeah. I mean, it just really wants to tie everything around that. I mean, yeah. Apple does some of that too. Like, you can, but Apple makes it much easier just to skip. Like, if you don't want to do the iCloud stuff or sign in or whatever, you can just say skip and do this later. Yeah. Um, I actually had to Google to like how to get around it because I didn't want to. I'm setting up a PC for someone else. I don't want to create their account and I don't want to use mine. Right. Because I have an MSN account. Don't want to use it. Anyway, uh, supposedly the Windows updates will be forty percent smaller. I think that whole MSN thing is because you're. It, I think it's subscription based, or they they tie your license because it's an because it's, it's a, so confusing. It's an evergreen license, and yeah. they tie it to your MSN account or something like that. It is so. Don't even get me started on. I had I set up a recently. You probably saw this. I recently set up a business account for us, uh-huh. so we could as a, as a business buy licenses to things and and assign them to people's. MSN accounts or whatever we can yeah. provision those accounts under the company and all that kind of stuff. That management that was tool, the, the biggest sucks, doesn't it? It was just getting it set up 
It was ridiculous. So first thing, it was like, okay, you need to create a new account. So I created an account with my company email address, but immediately it puts me in as like, I've had, it's like I have a family account. I can add family members. I'm like, nope, that's not what I wanted. And so, you know, I'm reading all their documents. Their documentation looks great. It's like, okay, go to admin.microsoft. So go to admin.microsoft.com. And I try to log in. Jeremy at elevation.solutions. And it says, we don't recognize elevation.solutions. We don't recognize that. I'm like, well, I don't know why. So I ended up having to call Microsoft on hold, bounced around a bunch of different departments, and finally got to the right one. She's like, oh, yeah, I, have to, I need to send you a quote. I'm like, I don't want a quote. After I get set up, I will just go in and then buy the licenses, add the users, all that kind of stuff. And she's like, and then anyway, I, I ended up having to get a quote. And, and the sh- so I got a PDF quote emailed to me, but there was a link in this PDF that I clicked that was like the th- little thing that I had to sign up to or whatever to actually have a business account. And, and they had to, they had to like provision like some, I think it was, you know, whatever, some custom name at microsoftonline.com is what it was. But none of the, none of the, and I still don't know if there's a way I could have done that without calling Microsoft. I don't know. I, it just, it was such a mess. And then, I mean. I don't it, know why managing accounts is so hard. It is, it. That whole Microsoft thing is such a mess. I'm, it's not just Microsoft. There's the, plenty of other places where you try to sign up with an account or link accounts or link services, and it's just this god-awful pain. You know, Some I thought, of them, like my uh, Epic Games account, if I want to link it to one of my other accounts, I get one shot at that. Yeah. And if I link it or delete it, I can never link yeah. it to anything yeah. else again. It's just like, I don't understand why that's so yeah. hard. We're running out of time, so I'll, 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 keep, I'll, I'll cut my Microsoft complaining short here. Uh, <laughs> Let's see. What else was cool about? Um, oh, this boy, this Android store thing is really controversial, especially because the primary source of the Android apps under Windows 11, it, they, people are saying it appears to be the Amazon App Store for Android. And Amazon, they need so when people publish their apps to the Amazon App Store, Amazon wraps those apps with their own code that communicates to the Amazon. App Store client to collect like analytics and evaluate stuff and enforce policies and different stuff. Mm. And yeah, so the question is, you know, when you use Android apps on Windows 11, which is cool. I mean, that's a cool innovation. Like that opens up a lot of functionality, right? It's I just mean, them trying to catch up to to Apple in a way, but it's it's probably the best way. It's probably the best strategy to do that, I think. But you know, if it's if it's going to be the Amazon store, and if it's true that Amazon wraps every app with their own in their own kind of package that's got its own code that does stuff when you run it and whatever, then that's a huge question that uh, Microsoft. Last time I looked, it was about a week ago, had not answered yet. Mm. Um, nothing that's interesting was de- developers will be able to use their own commerce engines, I guess for their, I guess for the sale of their apps. Then this is, and I don't know if this is particularly about the Android apps or not. So I'm not sure if it's the Android apps or if it's, you know, like Windows Store apps, maybe like mm-hmm. the native Windows apps. But yeah, you can use your own commerce engine to sell them, and Microsoft will not take a cut. And devs can even use their own payment systems if they want to, whatever that means. Uh, I guess that's nice. Well, it's a jab at Apple because there's a quote from Nadella. He said, Windows has always stood for sovereignty for creators. Which is kind of a, that's a little dramatic to say that sovereignty. Like, yeah. Like, there's some, uh, it reminds me of like this whole like weird sovereign citizen movement <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. It's weird. Sovereign. Okay. Anyway, but I don't know. 
Microsoft 11 or Windows 11. There you go. It's funny. I, I used to be all about Windows for the longest time. Even oh, though yeah. even though I hated how dirty it would get over time. Yeah. Like I was a I would I would frequently reinstall at least once or twice a year. It's funny how much some of these technical breakdowns just show that it's still like there how much of Windows 11 and Windows 10 also is still basically NT4 at the core still. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Windows OS I think was Windows 2000. That was a as far as Windows goes, that was a pretty damn good OS and I wore the crap out of that thing. I, I, I think I ran it for about 10 years. Yeah, that might have been the last one I used. It was like the first kind of merging of NT with yeah, and like the Windows 95 stuff. What? You, you didn't like XP? I did run XP. XP was pretty decent, but Windows 2000 was still more stable. XP was a little bit less stable. It had some more innovations and some newer stuff on it, but it was just it was still not as stable as Windows 2000. Like forever, like my studio PC and everything was all it was Windows 2000, like ten years. Well, John, what else do we want to try to get through today? I don't know. <laughs> I knew you were going to be like this. <laughs> okay, how about GitHub Copilot? Did you see any demos of that or look mm. into that? I told you I've been working. I haven't been able to. Indulge in I mean, this is like weeks ago, but okay. I um, mean, it sounds cool. I just, I, it's not going to affect me. I'm mean, like, unless I hug up my JavaScript to it, maybe the it's way, the only thing it probably would recognize. Yeah. Um, I, so I've read, I've looked at several, I haven't used it, but I looked at several of like the kind of analyses and everything. And I really, the way I see GitHub Copilot is almost as an evolution of what the modern IDs already do for us, especially specifically like IntelliJ. And then I don't, I don't know enough about um, what's Microsoft's Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. And even um, what was IntelliJ or JetBrains, the ReSharper. I don't know if people still use that for, for yeah. Visual Studio. But, you know, if you get good at those, I mean, they will, they write so, I mean, I would say of like the Java code I write, I mean, I feel like probably two-thirds of it is written for me by the ID. Um, especially when you get good at telling it what to do. Um, like if you want to iterate through a list or you know, create public static final variables or just all this like you shouldn't be typing. Or like you know, you do, I mean one easy my, I'm a lazy when I create constructors, so I'll just define like the, the final fields that I want and just tell the ID, hey, because the ID will immediately say, well, you haven't initialized these, so you need to put these in a constructor or something, so fine. Boom, done. And it just like writes the constructor for me. Like it writes all, I don't write any of this stuff. And I feel like this GitHub Copilot is kind of an, an evolution of that. You can say, write this thing for me. And, you know, the simpler it is, it looks like the better it, it does at it. Um, it just, on more advanced stuff, you know, it just gets a, it gets a lot of things wrong. And there's a, there's a really like a, there's a slider. You can basically, I forget what the term is, but it's like how aggressive you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And if you slide it all the way to aggressive, it just, it basically gets everything wrong, but it'll try anything. <laughs> <laughs> it will try anything, but it's probably going to get it wrong. And then you can, or you can keep it more conservative. But, you know, there's a, a the couple of the big problems with it is, is one, you know, it's, it's almost like another way to look at it is it's, it's, it's an automated way to go to Stack Overflow and copy and paste code into your program. Mm. Just kind of does it for you, really. And in fact, I mean, that's, I think it, 
is it? I can't remember. Was it? I know it was trained on GitHub. Was it? Is it trained on Stack Overflow too? Stack Overflow code? I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I think it's just trained on GitHub code. Um. So the downside is, you know, you're going to have developers who use this just like the Stack Overflow, and they're just you know, essentially pasting in other people's code into their, and they're like, okay, yeah, that compiles. Cool. Next. Right. <laughs> I um, hope not. I mean, that's not what's fun about programming. It works. Let's move on. Well, uh, yeah. Well, you got to think of why people are using. I mean, they're using. A lot of people will use this just to get their to get their work done, to get their job done. And it's not about fun necessarily. It's about you got to get this done. And I either don't want to do this thing, or I don't know how to do this thing. And so I'm just going to use GitHub Copilot to write it for me. I think I expect too much about my coding experience. Yeah, maybe so. I do like to. I, I like to enjoy it. I like to type it. I like to. I don't want things. I never learned all the shortcuts that says write this constructor for me because I, I don't mind doing it. Oh, yeah. I guess, I don't know. I, my problem is I've got so much code to write that if I hand wrote it all, especially, on, you know, to be fair, on a verbose language like Java, Kotlin, I write a much, a much higher percent of the Kotlin I write. I actually write it because you don't have to tell the compiler as much, whereas with Java, mm -hmm. you really have to tell the compiler a lot. Not as much as Apex. <laughs> but... You still, I mean, there's still just some verbosities of, of Java that we have to deal with. And I'd much rather have the compiler do that for me. In fact, I even write my code. The compiler has me, or IntelliJ has me trained to write my code in a way that I know IntelliJ can basically pick up. Like I write to a certain point and then I let IntelliJ just pick up and do the rest. Mm. And you learn how to write code in that way. And, you know, you just either, you know, whatever the, alt enter or whatever to accept the whatever saying or command in to bring up the little generator and like generates your whatever all kinds of stuff your hash code implementations your getters and setters i mean i don't want to write that stuff yeah um, i got stuff to do you know i'm like i'm busy i'm, I'm behind <laughs> so so if any any uh of that just verbose java code writing that i can cut down on is good about the only one i was really thankful for was the the imports oh yeah i don't like I, I could just import. start dot notating in my code and it automatically starts including the imports that I'm using. And is this JavaScript or? Well, that whatever. was, that was a Visual Studio. Okay. I'm yeah. just saying that was like one nice thing that I really enjoyed about that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't ever write imports. Uh, just, my, on JavaScript, I don't know if this is Illuminate Cloud or not, but it puts the wrong import statement when I use something. Oh, really? It's got the wrong pathing. So like, it's supposed uh, to be like a, mm -hmm. a C something path, but then it, it, it actually uses like LWC something and you have to change it. Or, mm -hmm. I don't remember, but it's just, Interesting. Just one of the things where I still don't fully understand JavaScript imports, especially because there's so many styles that you can use of them. What have we settled? Have we settled on the just the official ES whatever style of imports? I don't know. What's everyone using now? I don't know. Yeah, I just I just know how to import it, and I, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like the JavaScript imports, or at least not the stuff I'm using in yeah. in Lightning. It's weird because I don't like having to import individual functions. Or know that I have to import this entire function, or know that I have to import this as a class, and then initial, and then create a new instance of it. I don't like any of that. That's just, it's and, not fun. And especially, I know the, the again the IDs have gotten a lot better, but the other problem is like with with JavaScript, like you, it's not clear what you've imported. Not only because your import statement really doesn't help you, but just by looking at it, what tell you what necessarily what I mean. It you can see the identifier of the thing of the name you've given it, but you don't really know what that is. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it even harder because it's it's a dynamic language, dynamically typed. Again, I know the IDs have gotten a lot better. So yeah. for a lot of projects where you've got 
you know, your package, what's it, package.json defined, and, and you know, the, the IDE knows basically what's going on and knows yeah. the names of all these things, knows kind of what's available to import. So if you say import, you know, whatever, the, I don't know what the syntax is from, this package name or whatever, you know, it, it'll tell, it, you know, probably if you, hi, if you hover over that, it says, oh, this is a function or this is a uh, an object mm -hmm. or a class, or it can tell you what it is. You can even just import properties, just a property from something, right? It's just all so verbose. Yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I don't ever write import statements. And just um, give me a damn namespace. <laughs> the only thing I do on import statements is I, I do will go up and delete them. Like, I import the wrong thing. Uh -huh. Maybe there's a better way to do this. Like, a common one is like if I, like if um, you're working on a Java project and you've got like JUnit 5 and JUnit 4 on the class path, and you, let's say you, um, you import, like you, you decorate the method with add test and you go to import it and you just pick it real quick and you realize later, oh, I picked the JUnit 4 import. I should have picked the, or test, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. I should have done JUnit 5. Is maybe better way to do this, but I just delete the imports. Uh, statement at the top mm -hmm. and then it's like and then I and then it says oh at test is not recognized and I just and then I pick the right one and I'll let it <laughs> import that for me it works yeah but um, the other so back to copilot the other I think problem is 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 just licensing so it's you mm -hmm. know you are copying in other people's code um, and there's a, there's a, still the legal question of like is it considered a, like a derivative work or is it unique or whatever but it's you know, it's trained on the GitHub corpus, and you bring it in other people's code, so... Well, you know what the Linux people would say about that. What's that? It was never your code. It's everybody's code. Um, that's, that's like the anarchists. I don't, I don't know. The Linux people would know. They're actually... They are all about GPL. And so, they would actually be probably the last to use something like Copilot. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean... My, from my thoughts from the inception of Linux was that everything was going to be open. So it wouldn't be paying for code. No, it is open. You'd it's, be paying for services, not code. So it's kind of open. It's open in that most of it's under GPL, which means that it's, you know, free. You can do with it what you want, but everything you do with it also has to be open source and free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that's the way to get it to propagate. That's the pay it forward. Or, or, in, in some ways, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're actually, I guess you're, whatever value someone's creating on top of that, you're forcing that to be propagated. But because it's such a viral license in that way, it actually stops it from being propagated because people, it's just a non-starter. People can't use it for, you know, for stuff. That's why things like Apache and MIT are, are so popular because um, you don't have to, anything you build with those, with that other code, you don't have to share your source code for that. Mm -hmm. you just you know most of them just require like an attribution like somewhere it has to say like this includes you know this certain component or whatever yeah oh my gosh that's something in your eye yeah I do um that right. winking at me aggressively yeah, that's that's it <laughs> well um maybe we buried the lead for today which is that Salesforce's acquisition of Slack is complete as of today yeah, I saw that they uh, started putting that on the home login screen, but when I tried to click on any of the buttons that said learn more, it failed. <laughs> I was like, this is a few times I want to click this and see what, the, what, what that's all about, and it failed. Software's hard, John. Yeah. I, th I also feel like we should do a check. My, uh, my uh, Salesforce stock 
since I bought it, whenever that was a few months ago. It's to- total up uh, 12.8%. Mm. Although, man, um, so, my, so I bought Apple and Salesforce on the same day, whenever this was. And for the longest time, my Salesforce stock was just, ki- or I should say my position. My Salesforce position was killing my Apple position. Like Apple was like in the red. Salesforce is up like 7 or 8%. But now, so Salesforce is up 12.8%, but my Apple is up 15.8%. That shit's uh, skin in the game. Yeah, I've got this like special <laughs> little view in my Ameritrade that is compares just those two positions, so I can because I've kind of bought them just to, for them to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not supposed to look at it that often, right? I, I, well, I probably look at it like once a week, but I'll. I, just, I don't know. Just, I feel like we should every time we record, we should give an update on how the how my Salesforce position is doing. No, I, I didn't. We don't have time to talk about this, but man, I had, I had, I had to interact with support. Had to log a case. It's been I don't know how long since I've logged a case, but it, things have not gotten any better. I'll just say that. No, I couldn't even add other people to our case. I wanted to add one of our coworkers. It's because you can add an additional email addresses, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't accept it because it doesn't accept our domain name. It, I put in like you know whatever John at Elevation Solutions. That's not a valid email address. Because it's dot solutions. Yeah. And so so what I figured out is any top level domain, like dot com, dot org, whatever, that was created after nineteen eighty five is not accepted. <laughs> uh. So I actually so I put in a separate case about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't heard anything back. So it's because that's what they said that's that's a good day serves to that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, John, boy, we're not going to get to hardly any of this. No, I'm low energy today. Yeah, yeah, you are. Let's see. CEOs made 299 times more than their average worker last year. Yeah, no. And now these billionaire CEOs are flying in space. And I wonder, is, you know, is that what people mean nowadays when they talk about equity? Is that type of thing? I don't know. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's what normal people talk about. Um. But I think the government has a different idea of what equity is. So, oh, the government, huh? Yeah. How does the government play into that to that whole CEO pay or whatever? I don't know. But it's pay gap. What do they call this? What is it? What's the word for that? CEO pay gap or something? Pay something gap. Like I don't know. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I put something on here that was just a a reminder. It was, it's actually a repost of an older post, but it's about the nine states of design. And the only reason I put it on there is because every once in a while I need that reminder. Um, of just the flow of building a component or building something in the UI, starting with the empty state, adding state, and then adding more states and layers of the states. And um, I often forget that, and I start with what it's supposed to look like at the end. Yeah, and I'm and then I'm having to rebuild the entire thing so I can fit in empty state because oh, you're, kind of you're back. Because I'm back into okay. it. Okay, I would. I feel like that's a valid way to work, though. I would. I think that's a better way to work. Because it's kind of more pull based. Like I'm creating the the end thing first, and then I'm going to let that create pull to tell me what I need to build next to keep to keep filling in back to keep backfilling. So if there's a way you could make that work well, I think that's a good way to work. It's more like use case driven, like end user driven, like you know requirements driven. You would think, but in terms of the the actual rendering and loading of data and any kind of delays and things like that, you end up doing dumb things because you've built that top level first and you've built this certain expectation 
instead of letting it layer and grow and yeah. data populate, especially when you're talking mobile, because when you're trying to make something mobile responsive, you kind of want to start with a minimal state as possible and then expand into more detail. So when you start with more detail, you end up in, in, a, in a place where you're like, well, I have no way of making that mobile friendly. Maybe your whole, mm. maybe you've built this whole design yeah. around a table and you're like, oh crap, how do I make that table work on mobile? Doesn't it suck when the real world gets in the way of your pristine philosophies on how things should be done? <laughs> kind of like, because what you're describing, like building that in thing first, that's really kind of like the, the TDD way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Like the first thing you do is build a, basically a, 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 an, a, um, a functional test that, right. that fails. Mm-hmm. And then you, the next thing you do is build the simplest implementation of that that will turn that green, which is going to be a fake implementation or something really dumb. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep kind of refactoring that to get more real, more real. And if, if you're having to backfill like, you know, some kind of middleware or whatever, and then put a database in all that kind of stuff, then you do that. And that's kind of TDD. Yeah. But it's a little bit too idealistic. For it the is. Real world. And the other problem that, that it causes is you end up with this design with all these things you wanted to put into it. You know, you, 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 you ended, you, you started with your end state. Meaning I have all these icons and I have all this detail and I have all these buttons that will let you do this and do that. And then it turns out I don't have time to do all that. <laughs> so You're then like, you damn have to... it, I just I should have built this away. I knew how to build it and I'd be done by now. <laughs> no, what I mean is, is is if you start with the simple, the empty state, and then you start moving by adding bits of functionality until you get it to your final end state. If at some point you run out of time and you stop, you at least have a functional component. Yeah. But if you had started with everything, which was the entire wish list, now you're overwhelmed by all mm. this stuff you have to build, and you might have spent too much time on one feature that is never going to make it because, or you thought it was going to be a great feature, but it wasn't, or it just didn't have time to get there. Yeah. So I don't think you're supposed to build out the whole end thing first. I think you're supposed to build out just one part of it and then implement that. You know, and well, then, it's and tough then... to, to find that line. <laughs> I, it's you very go, tough. I'm going to build this component. I know what it's going to look like. It needs to have this, this, and this. It's going to have these features. And it's like, awesome. And then you start building. You're like, oh, crap. This is going to take me three weeks, and I've only got a week. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough. It's that whole idea of, like, you build a vertical slice of the application. Like, the simplest, like, UI thing. And mm-hmm. then you build... You built down from there, okay. And then I need a, I need a, an API, and I need a service layer. Then I'm going to need a database. Then I'm going to need an OS, to, whatever to run it on, like you know. Mm-hmm. And you kind of you validate that all of those layers are are integrating from day one, basically. Yeah. But yeah, that can be. It is a bit of a chicken and egg though, because I remember getting into a debate with an old colleague of mine of what should come first: should you design the data model first, or should you design the UI first? That is a very heated debate. Yeah. Still to this day, I think. Yeah. But there are very smart people that argue both ways. But yeah, I mean, I think the loudest voices are the, um, uh, the, the second. What was the describe that again? Yeah, I, I'm yeah. I'm on the data model side first, but uh, you know, I think it's just your personality. It's like what you're most comfortable with. And honestly, if someone's like, "Man, I'm way more comfortable," like if you tell me, "Like, hey, Jeremy, I'm going to build this thing. I'm just way more comfortable like building the building it this way," I'd be like, "You know what? You do what you're comfortable with because that's how you're going to be successful." I'm not here to impose my, you know, idealistic programmer religion on <laughs> on people. I mean, because you know, a lot has gone wrong because of that way of handling things. Like people, you remember, you know, even just back to the joke we used to have. You know, you know who I'm talking about, like the the one database table to end all database tables, <laughs> just dumb like, shit like that. The Salesforce model. <laughs> No, you know who I'm talking. I think you know who I'm talking about. No, I do. Okay, but it turns out that's what Salesforce did. 
Oh, for like custom objects or like yeah. custom fields? I mean, kind of. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. But yeah, that was a crazy idea. But to see it actually, I mean, it was, it's one of one or two, three ways of building multi-tenancy yeah, yeah. in a database. Yeah. I mean, you're mapping, yeah, kind of something that's dynamic onto something that's more static. Yeah. And if you don't want to spin up databases and tables just for every tenant, then you have to find a way to map all their custom structures, yeah. dynamic numbers of structures onto a static number of structures. Yeah, especially if you're trying to leverage a database level security, yeah. row, row level security. And that's when, and then it gets into like really difficult things like sharding or I guess the way Salesforce shards, I mean, they probably shard in lots of different ways, but one way is just the, the pod architecture. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of just big ass shards, mm-hmm. aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I just hear shards and I keep thinking shards. <laughs> it's hard not to. Uh, but yeah, I. I need to do more minimal design and less big upfront designs, I guess is what I need to remind myself of, especially with this last thing I built. Cause I built the whole front end first and filling in all of those features was, was very hard on yeah. me. You should have outsourced that part to someone else. To who, Jeremy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm happy. I'm happy yeah. to outsource. Tell me yeah. who I can outsource to. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I say that in jest because that would have been even more of a disaster. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Well, John, let's wrap this thing up. We still have us. We still have our uh, the Good Day Search Slack community still kicking. It's uh, still active. So, dear listener, if you haven't joined our Slack, go check it out. We're we're, said, we're unique. We're like independent. It wasn't. I know. I just you know I'm just saying like we we we're so infrequent now with our uh, recordings, but it just goes to show you that uh, the this community is bigger than just these two doofuses that record a podcast every now and then. Yeah, especially since you're going to be gone next week, so no episode next week. That's true. Ah, uh, come on. We weren't going to do back-to-back episodes anyway. Let's be real. Yeah, I don't know. It's been a while since that's happened. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're lucky we're still doing a show. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, if you haven't joined our Slack, go to uh, com, click on Community, and you can just add yourself, or other people can add you. Um, hmm, what else, John? I've forgotten how to do this. Oh, uh, we have an email address where you can send us like topics. I would still love to get topics. We don't get topics anymore. Probably because people don't think we're ever going to record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, info at gooddaysforpodcast.com. We still have lots of stickers. So keep those sticker requests coming. I've, I've probably, I've got a batch. It's sorry. It's, it's probably been, it's probably been building for a couple months. I got to send a batch out, but a shame. they will. Yeah. I know. I will get them sent out. So keep those requests coming for stickers because we do need to get through these stickers before they, you know, turn like, I don't know oxidize and turn to yellow or something that's some poor quality stickers mine don't i don't know they they're i'm joking they're not they, they look fine but still <laughs> my um, very expensive dollar per sticker yeah anyway other than that keep uh keep doing keep uh keep on writing those on. keep writing those uh test cases keep writing those uh whatever those things you were writing your uh handlers or your Bind Apex, refresh Apex <laughs> methods. We'll get through this together. Sounds good. Yeah, and let us know if you're in the functions. I'm, I'm curious on the how these fun- how this functions thing is going. I didn't have the really the patience to go through the application process, and nor I don't think I'd be a, I don't think I'd be a good like candidate for it anyway. I'm just. I think you would. Some of your integration. Work. That could be. I just again, it's like what I 
I wouldn't want to sign up and then end up not having time to actually do anything with it because they need feedback. They need people using it. And I wouldn't want to take up a slot. There was something I think I would like to offload to it, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't think any of it's packageable yet. So, mm. Oh, the functions? They yeah. will be. They will be, yeah. but... Not yet. And it's also it's still... I mean, we don't know what it's going to cost. We don't know what, what it's going to require. There's so many yeah. things we don't know. You can't really can't really do business stuff with it yet. Yeah. Just more for, you know, piloting. Piloting, yeah. Seeing what it does. <laughs> getting an idea of maybe how you might want to use it. And, and yeah. then you're obviously getting, getting, getting feedback to Salesforce. Anyway, that's all I got, John. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.